Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to CBS News Roundup ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This is the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Coming up, Gaza hospitals and a school hit by Israeli airstrikes. The people are trying now by their bare hands to pull out the bodies and injuries people. Ohio voters approve a constitutional right to abortion. We have always known that this was a national campaign. In the Kaleidoscope with Allison Key segment, worries over the disease threatening the nation's babies. No infant or mother, infant mother pair should ever leave the nursery without a syphilis test. I'm Allison Keyes in Washington. Anguish and fear in Gaza Friday as Israeli airstrikes hit three hospitals and a school, killing at least 22 people. This more than a month after Hamas launched a terror attack against Israel. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, in his strongest comment so far on the civilians suffering in Gaza, says far too many Palestinians have been killed. We have seen progress. We just need to see more of it. And we need to maximize every effort to prevent um, Palestinian deaths and to advance the uh, humanitarian assistance that's getting to them. More from CBS's Willie James Inman. Palestinians evacuated hard-hit Gaza on foot Friday after Israel said it had agreed to a daily four-hour pause in the fighting at the United States' request. But earlier, Israeli missiles slammed northern Gaza. Hamas says the courtyard and obstetrics department of Shifa Hospital were hit killing one person and wounding several others. Israel claims Hamas uses the hospital complex as a command center, which the militant group denies. Hamas is still holding more than 200 Israeli hostages. Screenshots from a newly released Hamas video showing 77-year-old Hannah Katsir and 12-year-old Yagil Yakub, who were kidnapped from their kibbutz during the October 7th attacks. In the video, they praise their captors, though they are believed to be speaking under duress. The Biden administration is working to secure the release of Israeli hostages and a number of Americans. The president believes the pause in fighting may help. We'll be continuing to discuss with Israel uh, concrete steps that can be taken uh, to uh, advance these objectives. Uh, We'll continue to focus uh, relentlessly on getting our hostages home. Fighting has also escalated in the West Bank. More than a dozen Palestinians were killed in clashes after Israeli forces raided a refugee camp. Willie James Inman, CBS News, Washington. CBS's Robert Berger joins us now from Jerusalem. Well, it's a very traumatic time in Israel. I mean, the nation is totally traumatized by what happened on October 7th. You have 1,400 people killed. I mean, it's unfathomable, really. There's never been a terrorist attack like that. So... Uh, The mood is very somber. You have a war that's been going on for a month. You have soldiers uh, that are getting killed. 
daily in the ground offensive in Gaza, you have 240 hostages. And, you know, it's a small country where everyone knows somebody, somebody who maybe is in the army, somebody who was killed, someone who's related to a hostage. So overall, the mood is very somber. I'm curious, are people at all talking about, well, basically the carnage in Gaza, right? I've, I've seen estimate of some maybe 11,000 deaths, right? And the alleged attacks on hospitals and schools and people's homes being demolished. I mean, you know, and I get the core of the terror attack, but is anyone at all talking about that? Of course, everyone, you know, these pictures that are coming out of Gaza, everybody sees them every day. Now, as far as how Israelis feel about it, certainly they don't want to see civilians killed. But as far as being behind the army and what it's doing, uh, they feel that Hamas started this war and Hamas is embedded in the civilian population. And if Israelis are going to be able to live in this country safely, basically they, they're behind the government's goal, which is to destroy Hamas. Of course, the dilemma is that Hamas is deeply embedded in the civilian population but support for the war and for what Israel's doing uh, it, within Israel is very high. I'm curious, Bob, are, and I know it's very early into this, but what are people thinking about how this will be in the future, how people can live together in this in this very small space? Well, it's uh, yeah, we're a long way from the end game here. Uh, this war is likely to go on for weeks and maybe months if Israel actually carries out its goal, which is to destroy Hamas. And then what happens after that? I mean, certainly you're going to have a lot of animosity uh, among Palestinians toward all of the, the high death toll in Gaza. And yeah, how are people going to live together? I mean, but that's been a problem since uh, Israel became a state in 1948. There's really never been peace. There were attempts at a peace process. Uh, all of them have collapsed. And now the United States is trying to revive the idea of a two-state solution. But we're a long way away from that kind of uh, political uh, solution. CBS is Robert Berger. Thousands of Palestinians traveled from Gaza to Israel for work before October 7th, and their lives are in turmoil. The U.N. estimates that more than 45 percent of the homes in Gaza have been damaged or destroyed. Many are now trapped, unable to reach their families, not knowing whether they're still alive. These men are all fathers. But don't be deceived by their outward calm. They are stuck in Ramallah consumed with anxiety for their families back home in Gaza, living through constant Israeli bombardment. Salah Abu Masulam was in Jerusalem about to undergo surgery. Then Hamas attacked on October 7. His operation was cancelled. Now every time the phone rings, he braces for bad news from his family. What do you say to them when you hear them screaming and the bombs falling? My children are alone. All I can do is scream and cry with them. Survival in Gaza now means not only escaping death, but also finding enough to eat and drink. I am sick with worry. My wife tells me she is struggling to find food. Gaza's humanitarian crisis is so catastrophic, there is hardly any food or water left. 
Amir al-Ashi was working in Israel when Hamas attacked. He says he was arrested and beaten by Israeli soldiers, then dumped in Ramallah. When his phone rang, it did bring the worst possible news. His five-month-old baby girl, Asil, was dead. Grief replaced by burning rage. Israel is murdering our children. They take pride in that, sending missiles and warplanes to kill our children. His wife is battling serious injuries in one of Gaza's already overburdened hospitals. They love their children, but we love our children just as much. Deborah Pada, CBS News, Jerusalem. Coming up, abortion rights in the 2024 election. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. Abortion access was a key issue in this week's off-year election. CBS's Jerika Duncan reports from Ohio. Abortion rights supporters are still celebrating. After voters passed a state constitutional amendment enshrining a woman's right to an abortion in Ohio, setting up a key issue ahead of the 2024 presidential election. The voters said, look, the government should not be telling a woman what to do with her body. We have always known that this was a national campaign because what happens in Ohio was going to immediately become the, the flashpoint for way people were talking about issues in other states. In Kentucky, where Republicans control the state legislature, incumbent Democratic Governor Andy Bashir defeated Republican Attorney General Daniel Cameron. Well, that didn't turn out exactly how I wanted it to. Cameron said he would amend the state's total abortion ban if elected to allow for exceptions in cases of rape or incest, but, quote, only if the court made us change the law. In Virginia, Democrats who campaigned on abortion rights took control of the state legislature there. The state's Republican governor, Glenn Youngkin, spoke on the issue. This is a very difficult topic across Virginia and across the nation. Over 20 states either ban or restrict abortion access. But since 2022, abortion rights supporters have prevailed in seven out of seven states where the issue has been on the ballot including in Ohio last night. I think our country is just getting harder and more selfish, um, and the unborn child is the one that's paying the price. National Right to Life President Carol Tobias says they will continue to fight. There are 11 states right now, as you know, that are considering abortion on the ballot next year. What is your strategy? We have to find different and better ways to, to reach out and get people to understand that 
uh, killing the unborn child is not going to solve uh, problems. And abortion opponents acknowledge that one of those key strategies is to raise more money, saying they were outspent here in Ohio and in other places where they lost. Jerika Duncan, CBS News, Columbus, Ohio. There are shockwaves over West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin's declaration that he won't be seeking re-election. But will the coal country Democrat run for president? I will not be running for re-election to the United States Senate. The announcement from veteran Democratic Senator Joe Manchin shook up Washington, raising new questions about whether Democrats will be able to hold on to their narrow Senate majority next year and about whether Manchin will make a late entry into the 2024 presidential race, something he has not ruled out. What I will be doing is traveling the country and speaking out to see if there is an interest in creating a movement to mobilize the middle and bring Americans together. The 76-year-old centrist was facing a tough re-election fight against West Virginia's Republican governor, Jim Justice. And some top Democratic sources tell CBS News they now worry Manchin is going to explore running on the nonpartisan no-labels ticket, which they believe would pull votes from President Biden should Manchin launch a bid. Meanwhile, the Republicans hoping to unseat Mr. Biden took swings at each other. Former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, who has risen in the polls in recent months, was attacked by political outsider Vivek Ramaswamy. Do you want a leader from a different generation who's going to put this country first? Or do you want Dick Cheney in three-inch heels? I'd first like to say they're five-inch heels, and I don't wear them unless you can run in them. Um, yeah, her supporters crapping her up. That's fine. Here's the truth. You're just the easy scum. answer. There was concern that the rhetorical fistfights only hurt the party and do little to upend a race dominated by former President Donald Trump, who skipped the debate. The juvenile back and forth between Vivek Ramaswamy and Nikki Haley, you know, those are not the kind of people who are going to beat the Democrats um, next November. Behind the scenes, my sources close to several candidates say there is now a sense of desperation, public confidence, but private alarm over money running out, donors losing faith, and until the field winnows down, Few are sure any of that will change. Haley is increasingly seen by some power brokers as perhaps the best positioned, but not as a sure thing. Robert Costa, CBS News, Washington. You better dust off those cameras because you know what time of year it is. CBS's Deborah Rodriguez reports that a surprising number of people stick to the old ways. It sure is easier sending an e-card than making a trip to the store. There's real music to boot, but a new one poll finds more than half of us still prefer to send greetings the old fashioned way. Younger adults top the list, with 62% of millennials and 59% of Gen Zers turning their noses up at digitized cards. When it comes to the holidays, 30% like to feature family photos. Deborah Rodriguez, CBS News. As the nation marks Veterans Day, a Virginia community shows its appreciation. WTVR-TV's Elizabeth Holmes. On a small plot of land in Sandston, Virginia. Oh, there's the rest of them. Is a big showing of appreciation. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. 140 American flags fly here on Williamsburg Road. It's an initiative by Sandston's Rotary Club called Flags for Heroes. Colonel Jerry Amelli. Member Tracy Pendleton helps place names on the poles, just underneath the stars and stripes. It's a very humbling uh, event when you start hearing some of the stories behind some of these folks. Um, we've had the leader of the Bedford Boys 
Bedford, Virginia, lost the highest per capita in World War II. One of those gentlemen is sponsored in here. We've had a gentleman who was um, sunk by a German submarine and uh, was picked up through a caravan, still alive. Around 60 different names are on display. Many of them are those of former military members. One of them. He was row three. Is personal to Pendleton. <laughs> Here we are. It's the name of his father. He was in the army during the Korean War. I still miss him and this just reminds me how much I miss him. The display has seen no shortage of support from community members, often garnering honks from passing drivers. No one's even critical about the fact our lines aren't exactly straight either. <laughs> Though it is mainly military names here. Carter Anderson. I'll put him here. Pendleton says it doesn't have to be. A hero is your own definition. A lot of them are just important people in somebody's life. Pendleton says it shares a message about Sandston, one of service, sacrifice, and strength. I get a little bit more story than these tags tell, but it's the benefit of doing the work. <laughs> the Grammy nominations are out. I like you. SZA is the most nominated artist this year, leading the pack with nine. Also impressive, Billie Eilish. Miley Cyrus. And Olivia Rodrigo. All nabbed six. Same for Taylor Swift, who also made history as the first person ever with seven noms in the Song of the Year category. The 2024 Grammy Awards air live February 4th on CBS and Paramount+. Plus. Stacey Lynn, CBS News. Coming up, the cost of college sports gambling. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. Gambling on college sports is legal in 38 states now, and with online platforms, it is an industry that saw $93 billion in bets last year. But how is that affecting the integrity of college sports? CBS News investigative correspondent Jim Axelrod has been looking into that. Well, it's such a question of when money uh, infiltrates any particular sector, things start to happen. And then we say money, think about this. In the last five years since the Supreme Court decision allowed states to set their own laws as far as gambling, there's been an explosion in online betting. Allison, let me give you uh, one statistic that may help us get our arms around this. Take March Madness, one of the most bettable events, one of the, the events that that gets the highest handle, meaning amount of money wagered. In 2022, March Madness essentially had a betting pool of somewhere between two and three billion dollars, right? A lot of money. This year, it was 15 billion. Just in one year, you saw five to seven times the handle of what you saw the year before. So there's an incredible amount of money. I mean, when's the last time you were watching a sporting event and did not see a televised advertisement for some kind of online gambling? Yeah, so that's true. With money comes a lot of questions and college uh, college administrators, people at the NCAA, they would say the money brings the threat to the integrity of the games. So I remember uh, that Iowa Iowa State game in September, there were players that were facing criminal betting charges for betting on themselves? Yeah, so 
you know, this was a question of, uh, you know, you pull out your phone. It's sort of ubiquitous these days. And lots of college athletes uh, are trying to uh, do what their friends and, and, and fraternity brothers, sorority sisters, and folks who are not competitive athletes uh, on the on the college level are doing and that's and that's betting and you can't you just can't do that now what was particularly troubling in the Iowa Iowa State game uh was that you know one of the players who was betting was the starting quarterback for Iowa State uh as an expert we talked to said when you have the starting quarterback for a power 5 uh football team betting the game um that's just you know a potential disaster also, let me tell you something that's even more disturbing, though. The baseball coach for the University of Alabama is accused and was fired uh, on the accusations of having bet against his own team or helping somebody else who he knew feeding him information that his pitcher had a bad arm and he should place bets against his own team. That's a five-alarm fire, in the words of somebody who's in charge of maintaining integrity over college sports and the betting, uh, a five-alarm fire. And I've got to ask you really quickly about this prop betting, which sounds crazy to me. People are basically walking up to players and going, okay, so if you don't make your first free throw, then we can all make money? Well, so prop betting is sort of a side bet. So the whole total amount of money is estimated to be somewhere near $93 billion bet online on sports. Prop betting uh, is a side bet, not on the outcome of a game, but on a particular play. And that's 12 billion, 11 or 12 billion of the total high are these prop bets. For instance, will the player, a given player, make or miss his first free throw? Now, this may not affect the, the final result, but let's just say, your frat brother comes up to you and says, hey, look, I lost a lot of money gambling. Can you just brick your first foul shot uh, and then I can bet on it and make some money back? Well, think about that for a minute. How are you going to detect if a given player in a given game taking a given foul shot makes or misses on purpose? That's CBS's Jim Axelrod. To see the entire series, go to cbsnews.com. The Supreme Court this week heard a case that could put the safety of people in abusive relationships at serious risk. CBS's Jan Crawford. The real fear of losing your life when you leave is real. It's a real fear. Ruth Glenn is head of a national advocacy group for victims of domestic violence. She also is a survivor. Eventually, he later found me a few months, a few weeks later and uh, shot me three times and left me for dead. Her organization was one of many urging the Supreme Court to uphold a 30-year-old federal law banning guns for people under restraining orders for domestic violence, like defendant Zaki Rahimi. Rahimi, under a protective order for assaulting and threatening to shoot his ex-girlfriend, was convicted of violating the law after he was involved in several other alleged shooting incidents in Texas. In the Supreme Court, his lawyer argued the law violated the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms, prompting this exchange with Chief Justice John Roberts. You don't have any doubt that your client's a dangerous person, do you? Your Honor, I would want to know what dangerous person means. At well, the I moment, mean, someone who's shooting, uh, uh, you know, at people, uh, that's a good start. 
Rahimi's argument could have wide-ranging implications for modern-day gun laws, as well as the system of background checks. Over the last 25 years, the law has stopped people under protective orders from buying guns about 78,000 times. The court seemed almost unanimously poised to keep it in place. Justice Elena Kagan. You don't give guns to people who have the kind of history of domestic violence that your client has. Ever since the Supreme Court ruled that there's an individual right to bear arms, there's been a lot of confusion in the lower courts about what kind of gun laws are constitutional. This case could also provide some much-needed clarity on some of those other gun regulations, including efforts to ban specific types of weapons. Jan Crawford, CBS News, the Supreme Court. And Florida, a single mom is killed by an ex-boyfriend less than an hour after she went to police to report that he was following her. WPEC-TV's Al Pefley reports that an investigation is underway to determine exactly what happened. 41-year-old Robin Caesar has confessed to killing his ex-girlfriend, 34-year-old Fraidlene Daniel of Boynton Beach. Police say he shot her multiple times in the parking lot outside her apartment shortly before 9 Wednesday morning. Neighbors all over the complex heard the shots and called police. I heard at 8.54 as I was getting ready for work, bang, 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 bang. So immediately I dropped to the ground and crawled to the window. I looked out. I saw her lifeless body behind a car. But less than an hour before she was killed, Daniel drove to the Boynton Beach Police Department to report that Caesar was following her. In fact, police video from their own cameras shows Caesar outside the station while Fraidlene was making her complaint. I think they should at least escort her home, make sure that she got home safely. Coming up in the Kaleidoscope with Allison Keyes segment, the growing infection putting babies at risk. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. It's three o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this. All of My Mochi's fabulous flavors like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free, indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned, gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings or the midnight munchies. Yeah, you know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Welcome to the Kaleidoscope with Allison Keys segment, where every week we discuss issues including gender. This time we're talking about what the CDC is calling dire levels of syphilis cases in newborn babies in the U.S. More than 3,700 infants were born with congenital syphilis in 2022, more than 10 times the number of cases a decade ago, and the most in 30 years. The agency says in more than half of the cases, mothers tested positive for the illness during pregnancy, but did not get properly treated. New infections fell to their lowest level in the late 1990s thanks to antibiotics, but the STD is skyrocketing now, partly over drug shortages and a lack of testing. We asked Dr. Ruth Cantula, a pediatric infectious disease specialist at MedStar Health, what's happening. I've known for a few years now that syphilis has been on the rise. Um, 
Uh, so I trained in Seattle, um, where we were seeing a rise in cases in syphilis. And then when I moved here to DC about six years ago, um, we're still continuing to see a rise in cases of syphilis. One of the things that was done in DC in response to the rise in cases of syphilis was to uh, do maternal testing at the beginning of pregnancy when a woman first presents and then to repeat it again in the third trimester or when she presents for delivery. And just based on what I'm seeing um, and looking through the report, it looks like they're, they're, like the opportunities are being missed um, in terms of uh, women who have little or no access to uh, prenatal care, which is disheartening. And it's not just syphilis, it's congenital syphilis, which is terrifying. So when we think about um, mothers having syphilis, um, that is the way congenital syphilis is um, transmitted. So a mother with unidentified or untreated syphilis is at risk of transmitting syphilis to her unborn child. And unfortunately, the consequences of that can be miscarriage, stillbirth, um, and if a child is a live birth with congenital syphilis, there are a lot of medical complications associated with that if treatment for the infant is not given in a timely fashion, which include developmental disabilities as well as um, skeletal um, abnormalities as well. So it's not, um, it's a very complicated disease to manage uh, outside of, or once the child is born. I've got to ask you, if you yourself haven't been tested for syphilis and then therefore have passed it on to your baby, are, are doctors going to know to, to see if that's the problem with the infant or, is, or do, do you think infants are going untreated as well? So as a, I can speak from my pediatric perspective and uh, the perspective of a pediatric infectious disease specialist and what I've been teaching my residents and fellows in training. Um, so what I've been teaching them is that no infant or mother, infant mother pair should ever leave the nursery without a syphilis test. Um, so, um, so what that means is that um, syphilis testing can be done on the baby. Um, when the baby is born to let us know if the infant was exposed or potentially has congenital syphilis. Um, and we can offer treatment at that point to mitigate some of these long-term outcomes. And then that's also an opportunity for mother to know what her syphilis status is. Um, and then one of the complicating things about um, syphilis um, in general um, and that goes along with the rising cases is that it's the mother and partner who also have to be treated, right? So you can have a mother who tested um, positive earlier on in pregnancy, she gets treated, but if her partner was never treated, she can get reinfected. And so those are that's where some of those missed opportunities occur. Um, so making sure that the mother and her partner are treated for syphilis. But like I said, um, in my, like, as, so since coming out of fellowship, um, one of the things that um, is important to me is that making sure that no mother infant pair leaves the nursery without having testing done. So if unfortunately you are that mom and your child ends up with syphilis, what's the treatment for that or is there one? 
Yes. Um, so the treatment for infants is a little bit different from for what we give moms. Um, so mom's treatment, depending on the stage of syphilis, can be a single dose of um, penicillin um, um, intramuscularly uh, or three doses um, intramuscularly um, separated uh, by uh, one week. So you would get uh, one dose um, for essentially three weeks. Um, for babies, the treatment um, involves um, a, a really thorough workup that includes blood tests, um, looking at their bones. As I mentioned, there can be skeletal anomalies associated with syphilis, as well as doing what we call a lumbar puncture. So that involves getting um, cerebral spinal fluid um, from the baby to look to see if there's any evidence of um, syphilis uh, in the fluid that surrounds the brain, or, and also it gives us a chance to see if the brain is involved in the syphilis infection. Um, and so once that is completed, uh, babies get um, who test positive for syphilis would get penicillin uh, for 10 days. And then depending on the response to that treatment, they may have to be treated again uh, when they're six months of age. But they can be saved, which is good to know. Another question sure. about the CDC report, because it said something like 88% of the cases weren't treated in time because there had been no testing. And you were saying earlier that this is partly because there is poor access to prenatal care. How, how big of a problem do you think that is? So, I mean, I think it's, a, it's in our community here, and I can speak for Washington, D.C., um, we see um, individuals with um, who are experiencing lack of access to care, either uh, due to insurance, as the CDC um, stated, um, having other um, sort of um, uh, social factors, uh, for example, substance abuse that could um lead to them missing appointments. And then the other um, population that we're seeing in this area um, are um, undocumented um, mothers um, who are having difficulty accessing care. So really the first time that they present for care is when they present to the nursery to, or to the maternity or to deliver their babies. Another thing from the report that was disturbing is that uh, cases have been rising among women of color, black women, uh, indigenous women, Latina women. Do you, do you think this is part of, I mean, well, okay, I'm a black woman and so are you. And I know that our community yeah. has had some issues seeking medical care, partly because of things like, well, the Tuskegee, right, uh, thing from where, where black men were allowed to have syphilis and be untreated. Do you think in communities of color there is still just a deep distrust of the medical community, or do you think there's something else going on here? I think that there's there's something else uh, going on. Um, not to say that there isn't uh, mistrust in the community. Um, it's part of a bigger picture, at least for my infectious diseases brain. So uh, when I think about syphilis, it goes hand in hand with HIV. It goes hand in hand with gonorrhea and chlamydia. All of these um, diseases, we are sexually transmitted diseases. And so if you're missing congenital syphilis, you're or missing syphilis in a mom, I should say, you're potentially missing HIV in a mom, you're potentially missing um, gonorrhea and chlamydia in a mom, again, all sexually transmitted diseases, and all can have um, uh, tragic consequences for the baby. So I think it's a it's a bigger picture, uh, really about how can we get um, um, women of reproductive age 
um, to, who are pregnant and even before they're pregnant to get screened for these sexually transmitted diseases. Um, and then when they are pregnant, making sure that they're connected um, to get tested and treated um, in a timely fashion during their pregnancy. That's Dr. Ruth Cantula at MedStar Health. Coming up, an unusual quarry for some Florida hunters. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. Florida is no stranger to reptiles, but this one was a whopper, and it took five pretty good-sized guys to catch it. Wink TV's Annalise Iudaola with the tale. Mike Elfenbein knows Florida wildlife. This snake was just, uh, it's just completely something different. But even he was shocked by what they saw driving down this road on Friday night. It was kind of freaky. Just a big giant head on it, and uh, it's looking at you, you know, and you can tell it's ready to do something. It was a massive snake, a 17-foot, 198-pound invasive Burmese python, the second heaviest snake ever caught in the state. So his group sprung into action. The only way to win is to grab their head. You've, you've got to be in control of their body, and so I reached down, I pinned her head to the ground, and it was all out. This big python did not go down without a fight. Literally like the five of us sitting on her, you, she lifted us off the ground. I mean, it was, it was pretty surreal. You might ask, what's going through a person's mind when they decide to battle a gigantic snake? The only thing I was thinking was winning. Well, you can't call a timeout. Like there's not a, when you commit to that, you're, you're in it. Like, Someone's going to win, right? It, I wanted it to be us. But after hours of battling the snake, they called for backup. He's like, I'm sitting on a python. <laughs> we need you to come dispatch. I said, I'm on it. Amy Siwi is a professional python hunter. I come around and there are five pretty big dudes sitting on a python. And it is the biggest python that I've ever seen. I mean, as far as the girth, I've never seen such a fat python in my life, especially out here. In Washington, the tail end of an era as the beloved giant pandas bid farewell to the Smithsonian's National Zoo. If you've been to the National Zoo since the year 2000, chances are you've got some panda paraphernalia, likely a hat with ears. This guy is a huge fan. They're majestic animals. Zoo director Brandy Smith says it's a lot for her and the staff. We have been with Meishong and Tian Tian for more than two decades. And let's not forget their four surviving cubs, born the size of a stick of butter. So thanks for the panda parties, the fruit and ice cakes, and the huge smiles of kids and adults alike. But CBS's Adriana Diaz reports. Zoo Atlanta still has pandas, though they're expected to go back to China early next year. And panda fans are watching a high-stakes meeting between President Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping next week in San Francisco, hoping that a diplomatic breakthrough could increase the chances of future pandas coming to America. Now to the creatures using their tails for good, along with their kind natures and their hearts, to help people overcome physical and developmental disabilities with a ride. It's a blessing because uh, every day is a blessing. Not only is every day a blessing for Robin Cohen, but every day she reproves to herself that she can do hard things. It's exhilarating because it's uh, riding a horse. Riding a horse may not seem like much, but Cohen has had to relearn how to walk. And it's good because therapeutic and it's really helping their 
mental attitude and whatever. It was really good. So it's something to see. And Cohen's husband, Richard, he's right there watching in disbelief how far his wife has come. She had a non-malignant growth in the upper chamber of her heart that had been undetected for years and a piece it grew big enough that a piece broke off and went to her brain. Richard was told that his wife would never walk again, but the Naples Therapeutic Riding Center and these horses have saved his wife. When she first came over here, the ramp that she walks up to go onto the horse, uh, they, she had to have assistance to get her up the ramp. Now she takes and takes off and goes right up the ramp, no assistance and no problem at all. And this is just one story of a life change from these horses and this program. The Riding Center works with other nonprofit organizations to help those with physical or developmental disabilities. Hidden away right off Goodlett Frank Road, it's a serene atmosphere for a different kind of therapy. And once they're finished on horseback, they come in here. Martin de St. Pierre is the executive director for the Naples Therapeutic Riding Center. The need of the growing community is only expanding. So now his mission is to expand their therapeutic services from the stable to inside this home on the property. And we just don't have the service infrastructure right now to accommodate all of those children, especially that are looking for um, you know, social and uh, mental health and, and physical rehabilitative services. So that's why this building is really important for us because it allows us to grow in a different way to meet that need. And board president Gregory Otis says this program is really unlike anything other because horses are unlike anything other. Um, they, they listen to, to the human beings and they understand what they need and what they want. Um, and then there's a real bond between them and uh, it manifests itself every single day. That's Wink TV's Corey Lazar. Finally, in our series Profiles in Service, the tale of a man who got to live two of his dreams. CBS Evening News anchor Nora O'Donnell introduces us to a Marine veteran coming off the sidelines. Kickers aren't supposed to make tackles. Taken down by Ganyard near the 40-yard line. And Matt Ganyard isn't supposed to be a football player. Body's not responding the same way at 34 that did at 18. But the father of two and former soccer star is making a play after 16 years on the sidelines. You know, my dad and brother looked at me and said, you've got a big leg for a soccer player. Have you ever thought about kicking? How, how far could you kick it? So I took a ball out and kicked for the first time. It was absolutely terrible. That could have been it, but it kind of gave me a little bit of an itch to scratch and really go after learning this new craft. Ganyard's football career took a timeout while he spent 10 years flying Cobra helicopters in the Marine Corps. In my mind, I, I was going to be a jet pilot like my dad. His father spent nearly three decades in the Marines, but the road for Ganyard had a few speed bumps. I got to flight school and, you know, I had some initial issues with air sickness. I remember being, you know, in tears talking to my dad and thinking this dream was going to fall apart before it ever really started. He persevered and his dream took off making way for the dream he's now living out on the field. Ganyard's service paused his NCAA eligibility, giving him this final chance. I don't think the wow factor ever, ever has really faded in stepping onto the field, whether just coming out of the tunnel for uh, warm-ups or stepping onto the field for a kickoff. Every moment, you know, it gives me a little bit of chills, uh, but at the same time, you kind of have to compartmentalize and focus on the job at hand, and that's kicking off and putting the ball in the right position. Nora O'Donnell, CBS News.
That's it for the Weekend Roundup. Thanks for listening. We want to get your feedback. Send us your thoughts and story ideas to Weekend Roundup at cbsnews.com. As always, you can find the program online on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. The Weekend Roundup is produced at the CBS News Washington Bureau. Sarah Fishman is the technical supervisor and Alan Peng provides production assistance. Tara Lipinski is the executive producer. Have a great week. I'm Allison Keyes, CBS News. If you like CBS News Roundup, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.